3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with bare premium plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Forward Thinking, the podcast where we think about the future. I'm Jonathan Strickland.
2: I'm Lauren Vogelbaum.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we wanted to talk about the evolution of speech recognition software and and hardware and to talk about how did we get to where we are and where are we going from here? Because clearly this is a thing. I mean, we're seeing speech recognition in lots of different devices and uh uh including computers, mobile devices. I know that my phone allows me to talk to it and ask questions and occasionally I get the correct response. Uh, I also have programs that will uh that will create a an automatic transcript of of voicemails. So how did we get to this point? How did we get to a a, a time where computers can at least on the surface level appear to understand speech. And to really understand this, we have to go back a ways. Uh, and by a ways, I mean 1773. What? Yeah. All right. So 1773, shortly before the Atari 2600 came out <laughs> uh, by a couple of centuries, uh, there was a Russian scientist named Christian Kratzenstein. And he actually – Kratzenstein. Kratzenstein. Kratzenstein, <laughs> That's yes. a great name. It's an awesome name, right? Well, he, during this time – people were starting to get really interested in the nature of sound and ways of producing sound. And uh-huh. Kratzenstein actually created something very interesting. He created a machine that was capable of producing vowel-like sounds using organ pipes and resonance tubes.
2: Oh, wow. Huh.
1: Whoa.
4: So, so in, totally synthetic.
1: Totally synthetic. And in this case, we're talking about a machine producing sounds, not a, not a machine taking in sounds and uh, analyzing cr- them and analyzing. Exactly. Right. This is a machine. But the, the history of speech recognition is also a history of designing machines that talk back to us. They don't just listen to what we have to say, but they can communicate back to us. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of one of those earliest uh, uh, versions of that. And he wasn't alone. In 1791, Wolfgang von Kempelen in Vienna... He built the acoustic mechanical speech machine.
4: We're two for two.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, let's just skip the entire 19th century. But but well, wait a minute
2: i, I actually wasn't i wasn't I think that Alexander Graham Bell, his wife was deaf, correct and um he originally, when he was starting to play around with sound created was trying to transform uh, trying to create this device that would transform audible words into a visual output that a deaf person could interpret mm-hmm. and uh uh i mean he he wound up creating pictures with sound, but uh, his wife never really managed to interpret them however right. that research started going into things like the telephone
1: Well, and also there were early attempts when, when the gramophone first became a thing when, when they started to use wax cylinders to record sound in a physical medium
4: was that Edison or somebody before him
1: Uh, Bell did some of this as well. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, there are actually quite a few inventors who were working on this sort of technology, but there were people who had created these different devices to record sound on a physical medium, and there were already people thinking, well, if we can do this, is there some way where we can reverse the process where we take the physical medium and make that into an input of some type? And some people were even thinking, maybe we can make an automatic typewriter once the uh the mechanical typewriter came into being there were thoughts of if there's some way to make this this same process where we're recording sound onto a physical medium then turn into a way of actually transmitting this into text that would be amazing no one quite figured it out at that point but it got a lot of people thinking and in fact bell laboratories was one of the leading uh, uh, companies or leading uh, research firms that was really concentrated on this speech recognition problem. And in the 1930s, there was a guy named Homer Dudley. Uh, I guess probably not quite as colorful <laughs> as Kratzenstein or Wolfgang. That's okay. But it's a more, uh, what would you say? It's a more. Uh, uh, Americana kind of name? Homer yeah. Dudley. Yeah, Homer Dudley. He was at Bell Labs. He pr- he proposed a system model for speech analysis and synthesis, and he also designed the voice operating demonstrator, also known as the Voder, which was a speech synthesizer. And this was essentially building on that same work that the other guys had done centuries before, but in a uh, uh, electronic capacity as opposed to mechanical. Uh, then we get into this era where the researchers were starting to try and figure out how to make machines actually understand speech, at least on a surface level. And uh, the early emphasis was on phonetics, which is the sounds we make in our language. You know, the mm-hmm. each language has its own uh, list of, of phonemes that – we generate in order to make mm-hmm. the words these are
2: yeah the, the building blocks kind of of speech it's the individual sounds and right. and they're similar across languages but yeah for example English has oh, about 40 uh, linguists are actually kind of in a, a disagreement about the exact number it all we... it all
1: depends on where you are like in the south <laughs> That's we, true we, too. we produce sounds in the south. Like, we can make a one-syllable word into at least three or four syllables, <laughs> y'all. So uh, we, we have the ability to insert sounds where no sound was before. Which
2: is why things like Hooked on Phonics do, does not necessarily work as well as advertised. Not,
1: not, not necessarily, unless you create a regionalized version, in which case uh, that would be
4: interesting. But, well, well, you've got to understand how hard this is for computers to, sure. to hear, right? Um, so we're used to it. I mean, we talk to people all the time, but just think about like it, when you're on the phone and say somebody is, is reading something to you, like spelling out a word or something and you, oh, did you say P or B? Mm-hmm. Did you say P? I could, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
4: what? what uh, that's why you need the uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot kind of sure, sure stuff. Uh, so when you, uh, it's so easy for computers to mess this up.
1: Well, yeah, and and beyond that, even if you are enunciating clearly, the speed at which you say a word can completely uh, make a computer misunderstand you. Absolutely. Right? Because if you've programmed the computer program in such a way, you've built the computer program in such a way that uh, it analyzes a word based on a sequence of sounds and it expects each part of that sequence to be a certain length, if you pronounce that word at a different speed than someone else, then the computer might have trouble figuring out that the two versions of that was the same word. And right. this, can, this can vary within an individual speech. I could say the same word twice in one paragraph, and the way I say it each time might be different enough to cause problems. Right. So these are non-trivial problems. And in these early days, they were mostly focused on just trying to figure out how to teach a computer to recognize those basic sounds. Uh, in 1952, Bell Labs introduced the Audrey system, and that could recognize spoken digits, which made it a little easier because you eliminate everything that's not a digit.
2: Right, you're, you're just going through through a series of, what, 10, 20 yeah, Probably words. it was probably
1: only nine, actually, because mm-hmm. you usually would do one at a time.
2: Nine, zero, uh, maybe yeah. Maybe
1: 10 if you include zero there as well. <laughs> I mean, you might not. It did, all depends. Had they discovered the number zero in the 1950s? <laughs> uh, they did, but they lost it for a while. Oh. Yeah, so... Uh, but I think by 1952, they refound it.
4: The Mayans had it, at
1: least. Yeah, yeah. it was, you yeah, 2013, we had to have it. I mean... Um, yeah, Bell Labs ended up having this Audrey system, and and by limiting it to just digits, it meant that they could work very hard on a drastically simplified version of speech recognition. Because, again, you just throw out anything that's not a digit, and it means the computer can concentrate on which digit did that sound like the most mm-hmm. based upon the phonemes that are needed to say whatever that digit is. Uh, in 1962, so this is a decade later, IBM demonstrated the shoebox machine at the world's fair. Uh, and it could understand 16 words spoken in English. Another good point is that speech recognition, uh, some of these systems are language specific. It's not that it can adapt to any language. It is, most it's of trained, these programs, it's
2: programmed specifically yeah, for a certain one, right? Exactly.
1: So again, if uh, the phonemes that we produce here are different from ones in, say, China, then it's not going to give you, uh, like, th- whatever it produces is not going to be the response that someone who's speaking Chinese would want, right? right? So generally in the 1960s, uh, Japanese labs began to work on vowel recognition phonemes and they also did some early work in continuous speech recognition. Now, this is important because, again, those early speech recognition programs, even when they got to the point where they could recognize full words, you had to put long pauses mm-hmm. between each word or and, else it never would right, know right. what you're saying. And unless you're
2: William Shatner, that's not really a natural way of speaking. So. <laughs> or
1: Christopher Walken. Yeah, either way. Um, also in the 60s. Fry and Deans, two researchers at the University College in England, designed a phoneme recognizer uh, that could recognize four vowel sounds and nine consonant sounds. And they used statistical data on phoneme sequences found in English to help the system recognize more words than it normally would. And this is kind of interesting. What you do is you say, all right, there are a certain limited number of sounds typically found in the spoken English language.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But those sounds are not, you know it's not that those are completely interchangeable and in that you're going to find every single combination of those sounds in an English word. There are certain sounds that are rarely, if ever, going to go together. So if you start to take those sounds out and then concentrate on the words that do use the sounds that are left, you have reduced the number of possibilities
4: and thus made the system more efficient and reliable. So now are we starting to get into an era of what you're talking about here, where the machines are doing some analysis? Yes. To uh, to to figure out what the language means.
1: Right. Well, really to figure out what it means, even even just to figure out what the word is. Exactly. That's what I meant. To to
4: interpret the sounds into words. It's um not just drawing on things that have been directly programmed into it. You know, the the hard coded. Kind right. Of understanding, sure. It's using statistical analysis.
1: Yes. And, and, I mean, clearly this would be important if you're talking about any sort of dictation software, right? Mm-hmm. Because with dictation software, to, to program every single word in the English language into a vocabulary for this program and to, uh, do every variation of the pronunciation of that word would be, pretty, that'd be a lot of work. Yeah. So if you can create a system that can analyze the phonemes and then based upon the certain statistical analysis, figure out or make a best guess at what that word is, you've, you've fixed a lot of the problems. And in fact, best guess becomes really important in just uh, a few decades. So 1971, um, Oh wait, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Uh, late 60s, early 70s, researchers start to look into non-uniform time scale approaches to speech recognition, which is that what I was talking about earlier. The fact that not everyone speaks the same words at the same speed or uses the same emphasis, so you have to figure out a way of analyzing that and uh, and accounting for that, and that it's called the it's called dynamic time warping, which hmm. is not. A jump to the left and a step to the right.
2: <laughs> I'm disappointed, Jonathan.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's dynamic to me. Yeah, well, you know, I'll take you to a movie on Friday. 1971, <laughs> the United States Department of Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, also known as DARPA, initiates a program called Speech Understanding Research, or SUR, and, uh, that funded several projects, including one by Carnegie Mellon University, uh, called Harpy, which is just charming. (laughs) But yes, there's a speech understanding system which could understand uh, 1,011 words, which I said was about the same as the vocabulary of a three-year-old. And uh, it used something called beam search to narrow down the possibilities of what a spoken sound could be by comparing it to the statistical data and going with the most likely results. So it's going with probabilities. And so this is really interesting to me because it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to produce the correct result. It's making a best guess based upon the input that it got what it was you said. So in this case, if I were having the conversation with you, Joe, and I said a letter and you weren't sure if it was P or B, you instead of you asking me, you just say, well, I think it was, prim- it was a P. I'm just going to write that down. <laughs> well,
4: I mean, if if your computer is smart enough and it has a large enough dictionary, it, it might understand that – um that say uh, the the word starting with a P sound makes sense here, but the word starting with a B sound does not. So, right. like, I, I ate a pear or I ate a bear, and well, some days on- some days the pear eats you. Exactly. Yeah, but of course, I, I'd imagine the machine at that time didn't have the resources to say go figure out if I ate a pear or I ate a bear made more sense. Right. 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 Also, but- I mean
2: we, we need to remember that this is uh, you said early 70s. Correct? Yeah, and so so this is when you know computers were the size of, of like three of my car at least, yeah. you know. Right. Well,
4: and there were I mean there was no internet yet and that'll come in in sure. a big way in, yeah. in, in in a little bit here. By the
1: 70s they had ARPANET but uh but that was very limited and well, uh, th- they didn't had have no, anything to do with they this. They had no
4: web to draw on. No, right? no web at for, all. For massive sampling of, uh, of data. So uh,
1: 1976, the uh, the SIR program that DARPA had concludes. Uh, there were a couple of other uh, agencies that had tried to create speech understanding um, uh, algorithms and hardware, but had not quite met the requirements by the end of the program to really count as a success. But they did end up – contributing quite a bit to uh, future endeavors. So then we've got the 1980s uh, that typically follows the 70s, and that's when they introduced a statistical method that was based on the Hidden Markov Model. Have you guys heard of this? No. The HMM? Alright. Uh, it's a little complicated, and it's difficult to really explain without uh, the benefit of complicated uh, graphics behind me, but I will try. So... It's it's a it's a probability model, uh-huh. and let's say that you've got um, let's say you've got three urns in front of you. Okay, three three vases are in front of you. They're they're solid. You can't see through them, but you see that you've put uh, a certain number of orange ping pong balls in each. Uh, the first one has the most. You put a certain number of white ping pong balls in each. The middle one has the most of those, and you put a certain number of yellow ping pong balls in each. the The third one has the most of those, mm-hmm. and then you already know the states of the. You, you you're actually watching as you draw these ping pong balls out, and then you're combining them to get some sort of uh, of response at the end. Uh, it doesn't matter what the response is, but you're you're drawing a ping pong ball out from each, combining them together, and that you see the whole process. Now that's a normal Markov model because you know the state of each of those draws from mm-hmm. the vases, all right? Mm-hmm. So so you, you observe the state. Now, let's say those vases are in a, one room and you're in another room and you cannot see into the, the other room. You just get to see the output of the three ping pong balls as they come out of this process. Mm-hmm. So you don't see how which one's drawn from which urn, but you know that one is drawn from each one and you see what the result is. Now, you don't know the state of those individual urns, but you do see the result, which gives you enough information to draw some conclusions about the state of the urns inside the room. Not enough for you to know for certain, but you can get sort of a probability of what happened in there to get the result that you have. That's a hidden Markov model. And that is an oversimplification of the hidden Markov model. So anyone out there who actually works with (laughs) systems that use this is screaming... That's way too simplistic, I know. but this is the easiest way for me to explain it.
4: okay. but so basically, what you're saying is that uh, it uses um it looks at the statistical prevalence of these three different colors appearing into the room, and by that it makes judgments about how uh, how common they probably are in the in the vases
1: more or less. And so these these models are used a lot in things that require a lot of interpretation on machines' Mm -hmm. part. Voice recognition is a big part of that, but it's not just voice recognition. Gesture recognition, handwriting recognition, anything where you know two people could try and make the same result, but because we are individuals and because we do things slightly differently, Mm -hmm. even though we're both creating the same result, we're doing it in a different way, the computer has to be able to
4: interpret that. Right, so it's because it's taking uh, sort of ambiguous analog data from the world.
1: Sure. Yeah. And it has to be able to to react to that and create a meaningful result. So once people started to concentrate on this form of statistical analysis, voice recognition pretty much hit its peak as far as recognizing individual words, uh, not necessarily knowing what the context is or what the meaning is. But it meant that if you were speaking into a, a, a machine that had this kind of software in it, it could determine with relative ease what it was you were saying not what it meant but what the actual words were so if for example if it's a simple speech to text program it'd be fairly accurate uh, and it got more accurate as time went on uh, in 1982 that's when a, a certain ray Kurzweil got involved uh, oh, ray... our old friend uh, kurtzweil's a, a well-known futurist one of those evangelists for the oncoming singularity, mm-hmm. um, a fellow who I think is hoping to achieve immortality through technology in some meth- method or another.
2: Personally, yes, yeah. definitely.
1: Uh, so he created in 1982 the Kurzweil Applied Intelligence uh, Division, a company really, and it was all about creating computer-based speech recognition. And in 1987, the, it introduced a commercial speech recognition system and uh, Kurzweil was really applying his expertise in two areas, computer science and pattern recognition. Uh, he was really interested in the way that computers can identify patterns and respond to them. And speech was certainly part of that. So he applied that that knowledge and that expertise and uh, really made some, some big contributions in the speech recognition field. Uh, skipping over to the 1990s, I mean, essentially we're having this field evolve over time. But in the 90s, we started seeing the development of real speech-enabled applications. So this is when we started getting those uh, telephone systems where you would call in and get an automated response saying, say say or press Mm 1. Which is, again, going all the way back to the Audrey system in 1952 that Bell Labs did.
2: Yeah, so you've (laughs) only got 10 responses, and so it just has to figure out which one.
1: Right. And then eventually it would get to things like, you know, uh, say yes or, like. I can help you with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is your problem? Please use a keyword. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Not that keyword.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't understand. Can you restate that? Yeah. So uh, by 2010, we get get Google's English voice search system, which incorporates around 230 billion words from actual user queries. Wow. Have have you all tried this thing? Oh, yeah. I use it all the time. (laughs) No, I do because I've got an
4: Android phone. So I I actually do use voice search all the time. Sometimes I think it's uh, really hilarious how accurate it is. Like, you know, it shouldn't recognize that term, but (laughs) it does. (laughs) I I use
1: it mostly for navigation purposes. So I'll pull up a map. Application and uh, it's a Hmm. Google one. So then I, you know, hit uh, speak destination and I can say an address or I can say a business name or, you know, if I have someone in my contact list, I can say their name and it pulls up the information, which leads us kind of into a second part of this speech recognition discussion. We've got the idea that speech and search are really tightly connected, actually, mm-hmm. uh, to the point where advances in one field often mean that the other field benefits as a result. But now we're talking about not just recognizing words, but pulling some sort of meaning from them.
4: Right. Well, what is the goal of input, uh, of, of, a, of an interface that takes input from a human and turns it into data? I mean, I... I don't know what you all would say. I would argue that the ultimate goal of an input interface is to become invisible, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to make things as easy and as natural and as intuitive for you as, as it possibly could be, so that you don't even recognize the tools you're using.
2: Right, right, to, to, to give the computer the ability to answer your questions almost before you ask them.
4: Exactly, and right now, you know, we're still um, using tools that we have to learn how to use, right? Sure. So when you um, when you want to talk to the, uh, the voice recognition program on your smartphone,
1: mm-hmm.
4: you do have to be aware that, it's only going to be, uh, listening to certain keywords, right? You have to, you have to give it keywords and sort of specific commands mm-hmm. that it can right. understand in order for it to help you. Sure. And in that sense, it's kind of like a program where, you know, you have a certain number of buttons you can click on or commands you can enter on a command line, um, that, that are chosen from a list of pre selected commands, but you're just doing it with your voice.
1: Right. Anything outside of that would, just be interpreted mm-hmm.
4: as an error. Sure, yeah, exactly. yeah. You can
2: say open and close, but if you say French fries, it goes quoi?
4: Yeah. yeah. So um, let's say you had this and you were looking for uh, something on Google, right? You are looking at Google Maps and you are using your voice. You could probably say French fries, though, right? Oh, you sure. You could say, like, French fries near my house. Well, even there, it, it might be able to understand those keywords, sure. right? And it, mm-hmm. You've given it something that it knows how to work with. Mm-hmm. But what if you've got a problem like... Oh, I'm trying to remember this meal I had that was real good in town, and I don't know. And you're kind of describing it, but you know, <laughs> right, it can't do anything with that. Right, I mean, right. You'd That's, have to talk to a person at that point.
1: You right? would ha- either that, or you would have to have every single restaurant give every single possible explanation of what its meals would be like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
4: Um, but so th- this leads me to a question about the future of, of voice and speech recognition. And, and here's a question: Why do we call tech support? I mean, if, if you've, I mean, most people, working. <laughs> most people have called tech support at some point, but I will venture that almost any problem that can be solved by tech support, there's already a written out solution to the exact problem you have somewhere online. Sure. Oh, sure. All right. Somebody has already solved this problem and they've probably typed up instructions on how to fix it.
1: Right. And they may even be easy to follow instructions, but right. the, the challenge there is... For the person who's experiencing the problem, how do they frame their problem in such a way that they get the the Exactly the the right response? Mm -hmm.
4: How do they connect the problem they're experiencing to the solution that exists somewhere out there if they don't know what the correct keywords are. If they don't know... they don't know know what the
2: problem is itself, they're just going, my screen won't turn on.
4: Exactly, Mm -hmm. and that's why we call tech support, I think. You call tech support because you need something that can process natural language, Mm -hmm. which is, right now, a a person. (laughs) A person can listen to you describe your problem in whatever terms you come up with can take that information, get the gist of it, and connect that to a piece of knowledge.
1: Right. And then you know. in, in return, that person can respond with language that the, the person who called in for tech support can understand. So for ex- instance, if I'm experiencing a problem and I call up Joe, and Joe tells me how to fix it, but I don't understand his explanation. I can re- I can say uh, I am I, I, sorry. I just don't I don't get that. Mm-hmm. Joe can actually then take the time to reframe what it was he said in a way that my puny brain can comprehend.
4: Right. And then I can
1: turn off my computer and turn it back on again and it suddenly
4: works. (laughs) So, yeah, it totally works both ways. I mean, but it's so especially important in in identifying what the problem is to begin with, because Mm -hmm. a lot of times we just don't know the right way to explain it to a computer in terms of commands and keywords. And so... I think this is, this is sort of the future of where voice recognition is going from here. And there, there are a couple of things we need to explore. Right. About um, voice and speech recognition. Uh, one of them is how does the computer understand uh, whole whole speech, like sentences that you're speaking to it, as opposed to just little words at a time, right, and make sense of those in a grammatical way mm-hmm. and and
2: actually make sense of them instead of instead of yeah, picking up on those keywords because yeah you know, right now the technology doesn't know what you're saying it's exactly. right mm-hmm, so yeah,
4: uh, well, I mean and in in our way, it will probably never know what you're saying Oh
1: Kurtzwell. Well, gonna be okay, so mad exactly. You. yeah
4: <laughs> we can have a debate w- will computers achieve consciousness you know yeah. will the Terminator learn to love but uh, be- whether or not the Terminator Terminator will understand the meaning of love, um, the Terminator will at least be able to make sense of my grammar even if it's spontaneous <laughs> and kind of mangled so, so
1: the Terminator may not love but it may be able to mark up your paper.
4: Yeah. it may be able to help me figure out what restaurant I went to when I was in town last year just by me describing some dish. Well, if the Terminator doesn't love you, I don't see it taking the opportunity
1: to actually help you with that problem. And I'd but like
2: to put in that I do not want the Terminator to be my English teacher ever. Thanks. Uh, no. I, I'm
1: pretty sure I had the Terminator as my English teacher. Oh, you fail English. <laughs> so so before well, we wait, before well, we offend all of our well, Austrian no. listeners. Sorry. Uh, well, no, I
4: want to uh, introduce a, a possible way of viewing uh, the progress of, of our input through voice and, okay sure. and that's a way of uh, looking at the uh, the computer helper as something that's... Um that's uh, got an obedient orientation versus a sympathetic orientation. All right. And what do you mean by that? And so I I would say that right now computers have an obedient orientation, meaning they they solve directly problems that you give them. Right.
1: They do what you tell them to do and that's – it. Yeah.
2: Right. And, yeah. And when they're not doing that, it's because you haven't told them how to do it. Correctly. Exactly.
4: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you enter a command, and it follows the command exactly. It performs the calculation. It searches for the search term. What, however, it goes like that. Now, what makes that person on tech support different? That person has a sympathetic orientation as opposed to an obedient orientation. What that person does is listens to your whole problem, gets the gist of it figures out what's important and then helps you solve it. Right. They see the end. Mm-hmm. They see not just each of the individual commands you're giving, but they understand what you're trying do, to do overall.
1: Right. And and we're already making some pretty big strides in natural language recognition. Uh, for instance, IBM's Watson, which was famous for going on Jeopardy up, up against two former Jeopardy champions and beating them and
2: winning yeah. in mm-hmm. a, in a
1: game of Jeopardy. Um, but what it had to do was it essentially had a huge amount of information stored in its in its data banks yeah uh, but it had no connection to the internet while mm-hmm. it was playing the game, so no, it was. It had
4: much of the internet on it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was self.
1: <laughs> but it was self-contained. Yeah. All, right. The, right. all the YouTube comments were left off. But otherwise, yeah, uh, it was. S-
4: uh, it, why didn't
1: it need those? Yeah. <laughs> I- you <laughs> heard the story about what happened when when it learned Urban Dictionary, right?
2: Yeah. They taught it Urban Dictionary, and then they basically had to nuke Urban Dictionary from orbit from from its databanks because because, wow. because it started, started mouthing off. It started uh, <laughs> mouthing off at people.
1: It's true. Yeah. That's completely true. Wonderful. Okay. So, so
4: I understand why it doesn't need YouTube comments. <laughs> Right, turn uh, turn Watson into a vicious sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just
1: a, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, Alex
4: Trebek, I will kill you. It was essentially
1: <laughs> becoming the, the 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 Sean Connery from the Saturday Night Live. Skits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. So anyway, it had it, it was it was closed off. So it, it didn't have an outside. It didn't have an outlet to uh to, to go out and do a search on the internet for right. anything. So uh, when a Jeopardy clue came up, it had to analyze the clue, go through its database, and then determine which bits of information were most likely to be the relevant ones to answer or to form the question in the case of jeopardy for that clue. And uh and the way it did this was that it would assign probabilities to answers based upon parsing out the clue. And the thing about jeopardy is that it's not just um uh really uh, straightforward answers, you know, things like, you know, this is the is Beethoven symphony that contains "Ode to Joy." Do, 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 what is the Ninth Symphony? You know, it's not.
4: Mm-hmm. That's, there's there's wordplay in there, right? Exactly. There, there are, are puns like little, and humor, uh, yeah. and yeah, all yeah. So, of-
1: so they had to create programs that could that could parse that language and determine what is the underlying meaning of this phrase, not just what do these word what are the, you know, not just using those words as, as search terms. Because if it did that, it never would have won. Right. It had to figure out the relevance. And so what it would do is it would pull up all these different answers and assign that probabilities for uh, being the correct one. And if the probability was higher than a threshold, and I, I can't remember what the threshold was, like 70 or 80 percent or whatever. But if it was higher than that threshold, then, then and only then would Watson guess. guess in
2: and guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Otherwise, Watson would be quiet and allow one of the other two people <laughs> to answer, um, which is really interesting to me because that's a, it's a step towards that natural language recognition. The idea that it's not just looking at the words as search terms, but as these are thing, units of meaning
4: Mm-hmm. They have
1: meaning and therefore you need to find the data that corresponds with that meaning and that
4: right. is incredible. Well, it was searching for uh, – if I'm correct, wasn't it wasn't – it had something to do with like uh, it, keywords would be searched um, based on when they were in proximity to other important terms, right?
1: As far as I can understand it, yes. Okay. Uh, but I mean it gets really pretty complex and then uh, beyond that, you know, we're starting to see Watson being used in – uh, in in medical facilities, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, they're using describe
4: it to what's wrong, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a
1: diagnostic. Yeah. Although a lot of doctors will tell you that while it's a useful tool, it's certainly not a replacement for a doctor right. because so many cases can, like, two people with the exact same condition can come in and and, and not present present different symptoms mm-hmm. and even explain the same symptoms in very different terms and so it becomes increasingly difficult for a machine to be able to interpret that and come up with the right right response as opposed yeah. to a doctor who has that experience and has the ability to be much more dynamic and even uh, proactive in, in mm-hmm. asking the right questions to get the right information.
4: Well also I mean a doctor much like the tech support person is uh, though with much higher stakes obviously is able to identify what's important. Mm-hmm. I mean a lot Most of the time when you come describing a problem, you're giving too much information. All right. the time. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're giving all this information and, and a huge amount of it is probably not actually relevant mm-hmm. to, to the, what's really the problem. And that's when the human who's experienced this before knows what to zero in on. Computers have more trouble with that, right? Like they have a hard time figuring out what's important when you've given it a list of terms. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it, it without without giving it some form of – of a way of recognizing context and mm-hmm. way of recognizing the importance of particular words and particular phrases, uh, yeah, I mean it's just it, how does a computer determine that the third word in a sentence is more or less important than the fifth word? right
2: It's all statistical probability, and at a certain point, you're going to plateau on that because the more the more input that you give to these kinds of programs, you know they'll analyze it and analyze it, and it gets really accurate, and then kind of stops getting more accurate. Yeah,
1: in fact, that's been a real issue with voice recognition in general, and and a very interesting thing that I think maybe it's it, it's interesting to me because Kurtzweil worked on voice recognition, and and I know the man must be aware that the technology increased at a pretty rapid pace, but then began to plateau off. You know. Really, it even began to plateau off in the 80s. We made improvements, and we learned how to use the technology we had created better in better ways. Mm -hmm. But it's not like the advances we made are uh, exponentially better than the previous generations. So in a way, the curve is starting to plateau off and level off. We're We're still making advancements, but not at an accelerated rate. Whereas with Moore's Law, every two years, essentially, we're seeing computers get twice as powerful. And so... I think that that makes some futuristic predictions less likely because we, re- we recognize not all elements of technology uh, accelerate at this same
4: rate. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, for the future of, of speech recognition, natural language processing is key. Mm-hmm. Um, and natural language processing, uh, the, you know, Watson seems amazing, but compared to what's probably going to come in the future. Watson is actually very primitive, right?
1: And and also, we got to keep in mind that right now, even though Watson does did do this amazing thing by beating humans at their own game, mm-hmm. uh, it had thousands of processors yeah. mm-hmm. and tens of thousands of cores. So you're yeah. talking about an incredibly powerful, uh, energy-hungry machine mm-hmm. that was able to do something that a human can do.
4: Right. Well, <laughs> right, it right. was
2: a tiny little meat thing. Can, yeah. Can just write.
4: It was able it was able to do what the tech support operator can <laughs> do. And and ultimately, I think that's the end game here. It, what we're talking about in the far future, what we dream about is when your computer is as sympathetic In its orientation as a human helper, is that you can describe in spontaneous human language what you're trying to do, and it can actually help you with that, as opposed to just operating off of set commands.
1: And and it's, we're getting there. I mean, if you talk to people who have used Apple's Siri or the Google voice search stuff, you know, you can use some pretty, you know, uh, colloquial sayings to get what you want, and it's. It's getting better and better at interpreting mm. those and giving you the response that would be appropriate, and uh, and granted, this is all again still on a surface level, yeah. but it but it's it's seemingly deep, you know, to to the user experience, yeah. it seems like the machine understands what you're saying, even though that's not it's really good you. yes, mm. <laughs> and um, and you know maybe in the future we have the semantic web. That responds exactly to what we want, even if we were to, you know, I know that it's really hard to get tone across in text messages, but maybe computers will be better at it than uh, people are. Maybe. By the way, I'm always I'm always J slash K, if you (laughs) if you're wondering. Um, All right, well, you know, we should wrap this up. We've gone on quite a bit about voice. And speech recognition. It's a fascinating topic, and it is one that uh, I, I am eager to see more advances in the field. We've seen stuff, not just in smartphones and tablets, but also game consoles, things like Microsoft's Kinect and uh, and other devices as well, uh, incorporate voice recognition. And I expect we're going to see even more of that. Uh, I can't wait for my thermostat to have it. Um, <laughs> it's too darn hot in here! And then it just immediately just cranks down 5 degrees. Uh, that'd be fantastic, because... Uh, I don't have one that's connected to the internet, so I can't just use my smartphone. I actually have to... I can't believe it. Ugh. Get up and go across walk the to it. It's uh, a crazy. I know. It's a, my life is a drama waiting to be filmed. So, guys, um, that's our episode about voice recognition. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we highly recommend that if you have any topics that you think forward thinking should cover, stuff about the future that really has you excited, that you get in touch with us. We have an email address now. It's fwthinking at discovery.com. You can also go to fwthinking.com for all of our content. We've got videos, blog posts, podcasts. We have links to all of our social networking stuff. Go there, uh, connect with us, let us know what you think. We look forward to hearing from you, and we will talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is the lunch rush at your local deli. Orders are flying in online, on the phone, and in person. Order for Nick. So, is it possible that fast internet could help your business outrun the rush? It is with Comcast Business, powering your connected devices with gig speed Wi Fi and fast
4: downloads and uploads. With Comcast Business, next level speed isn't just possible, it's happening. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
0: Requires gigabit internet and compatible router. Actual speeds vary. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.
3: Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit MortonBuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit MortonBuildings.com to get started today.
2: Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors
0: is here for the ride.